what's up, gang? This is Derek M. Cook, your producer and host of Monster Kid Radio. This is episode number 34 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Now, we came in on the song Angua Roja, translates to Red Water, and I might have gotten it wrong, by the band Los Wet Guitars. It's from their album Lost B-Sides. You can find out more about the band over at their website at loswetguitars.bandcamp.com. Of course, there will be a link in the show notes of this episode over at monsterkidradio.net. Also at monsterkidradio.net, you'll find links to all of our contact information, like our email address, monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or our voicemail line, which is 503-4795-MKR. You'll also find links to our Facebook page, links to the bands, and everything else that we do here at Monster Kid Radio. We make sure there's links to that, as well as a link to the website of Rich Chamberlain. He is the man behind the Monster Movie Kid website, and he is our guest this week on Monster Kid Radio. What we're going to be talking about are two of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio, Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff. We're going to talk a little bit about the so-called rivalry, their careers in terms of how they actually had a lot more similarities than a lot of people might think. And then in part two, you're going to hear our top three list of Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi collaborations. This week, I'm going to try to do two episodes. I appreciate everybody being patient. While last week, there was only one episode created awesomely by Scott and Tracy Morris. They contributed that episode last week while I was dealing with a couple of medical issues. I am on the mend from my gallbladder surgery. I am now living sans gallbladder, and I think I'm getting along without it okay. I don't know if it misses me. I don't necessarily miss it. So I'm recovering from that, spending a lot of time horizontal, and I have a TV and a Blu-ray player set up in the bedroom, so I'm watching a lot of movies while I recover. Also had a pretty bad car accident. Still dealing with all of that. Not too much more to say about that. However, I do appreciate all the positive thoughts, vibes, juju, and everything else that everybody's thrown my way on Facebook, in emails, and voicemails. I just really appreciate everybody's support. So thank you so much. You know, we're going to go ahead and get into part one of our talk about Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi's so-called rivalry and similarities and that sort of thing with Rich Chamberlain right after this. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom, so tune into B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio are Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff. They used to be part of our tagline here on the show, and I wanted to talk about these two guys, and I didn't want to do it by myself. In fact, it was Rich Chamberlain's idea to talk about these two in the first place, so I brought him on the show to talk about Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff. How are you doing, Rich? I'm doing great. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good, man. We've had you on the show before. How have things been going since your last time on Monster Kid Radio? Things have been going good. Personally, things have slowed down a little bit. Uh, things were crazy for there for uh, a good chunk of the summer, but now that we're entering the fall and ready for the Halloween season, things are slowing down. I'm getting caught up. I'm almost done with the Godzilla series, so I'm hoping to have that done by the time uh, Halloween rolls around and I can dive into some uh, some classic movies from the Universal and Hammer and uh, some Karloff and Lugosi goodness. When you say you're almost done, we're talking about the coverage you've been giving these films over on your website, Monster Movie Kit. That's correct. You know, I I'd started diving into the Godzilla movies. I'd seen a lot of them, of the older ones. I hadn't really seen very much of the of the newer ones. 
And I just a couple of years ago started working my way through slowly. And so when I launched the website last year, I kind of started reviewing where I was at the point in the series. And then um, uh, Stephen B. Sullivan said, you know, hey, you should go back and review the ones that you'd watched previously before you launched the site. And so at this point, I have reviewed everything up to where I'm at in my viewing. Now, as we're recording this, I'm diving into the 1990s movies. Then it's into the last series of films from uh, 1999 through 2004. So uh, over the course of the next uh, probably three to four weeks, I'll be reviewing those over on the website. And then, yeah, we'll be, I'll be caught up with my Godzilla films. Uh, I will not be reviewing the 1998 American Travesty. Now, why, why, I will see, make a... We can't even talk. Don't know. You give it power every time you mention it, man. Ah, I don't know, man. I was like, you know, I, I, I thought about maybe I should just, I'll, I may make a brief mention, but in my <laughs> mind, that's not Godzilla. It's not. Now, I'm actually the new one. I think they, I think they get it. I think they understand. Even though it's not going to be a guy in a suit, it looks like Godzilla, and from what I can tell, and I think that they're gonna. I think they understand where you know the '98 film went wrong totally. Sure. So uh, I'm having fun with it. I'm having fun with it. The 1990 movies so far have been a little rough, but that's mostly because I only have pan and scan dubbed versions of those films, and I've gotten Ooh. used to the widescreen Japanese language films. Um, I thought about trying to repurchase the 90s films, and I said, no, I'm just going to go with what I have, but boy, it's making it rough. So I'm ready, once I get done with those, to dive back in, because the last movies I have from 99 to 2004 are all widescreen Japanese language, and I think that's the only way you really should see the Godzilla flicks. But I know a lot of people love the dubbing. If the dubbing is good, it works, but unfortunately for some of the 90s films i haven't really enjoyed the dubbing it's pretty bad so hopefully as i work my way through the movies i'll be able to let the movies outshine the dubbing <laughs> and uh we'll, we'll wait and see how that how that comes out so I'm, I'm actually looking more forward to the films from 99 to 2004 i've only seen godzilla 2000 i haven't seen the others i'm actually really excited about checking those out and that, that'll happen in the next couple of weeks right on yeah, the Godzilla movies, big fan of them here at Monster Kid Radio. I mean, we've talked about Godzilla here on the show. I think I, I found a way to talk about Godzilla at least once every other week. I get to mention it at least once. So, big fan, and I've been reading along, and I can't wait to, I cannot wait for the 2014 release. That's going to be a lot of fun, and I mean, I think we're ready for another solid kaiju push with Pacific Rim and Godzilla coming. I'm ready for Toho to do another Godzilla film. Yeah. Yeah, I, I enjoyed Pacific Rim. A lot of people were disappointed by it, but, you know, I, I went into I, it. I don't thinking, know those people. Come on. I don't know those people. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> as I, you know, I, as like it, what more, it, it gave you giant monsters, it gave you giant robots, and they battled it out, yeah, and I thought for the most part, the action sequences, you could see what was going on. I actually liked the fact that most of the battles took place in the dark and in the rain. I think it enhanced it. I had no complaints. It's one of my favorite films of the years. I love Pacific Rim. So yeah, I'm ready for Godzilla. I'm ready. Yeah. I'm ready to to see what they can do with it. It's got to be better, like I said, in the 98 version. So <laughs> Why do you bring it up? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess we should call it the film that, sh that we shall not speak of. It, we shall not mention its name. <laughs> The yeah. Voldemort of uh, Godzilla flicks. <laughs> you know, when when that movie creeps up in my brain, for whatever reason, whenever it comes up every once in a while, I try real hard to just kind of diverge my memories of it to the lousy Taco Bell commercials. The here, lizard, lizard, lizard. That That's where my brain goes, and I don't know if that's a good or really, really bad thing. I actually still had some of those Taco Bell giveaways up until about three months ago. So, I, I did a purge of some of my stuff. Uh, I was going through and I said, okay, what stuff is really worth something? And what stuff is just taking up space? And when I came across the Godzilla stuff, I said, no one is ever going to buy this stuff. This is not going to increase in value. You know, when it came out in 98, I actually, uh, when I initially saw it, I liked it until you know, I started thinking, no, this is a Godzilla film. I can't remember the film I watched, but I watched the classic Godzilla film, you know, and I was like, no, no, I don't like it. Because it was, if, it, if they would have put in any other name on it, it would have been acceptable. It still wouldn't have been a great movie, but it would have been acceptable. But the fact that they called it Godzilla is what ruins it, really. When, yeah. when, you, when you think about it, it's, it's if you go into it, and if they were like, maybe to redub it, and <laughs> <laughs> and just call it, you know, I don't, you know, 
giant lizard his mother or something. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Just something else. Something other than Godzilla. Now, it might be more acceptable. Yep. Yeah, well, at least it gave Toho the push to do some more Godzilla movies of their own, which we can be thankful for, and we'll be reading about those on your blog. Uh, there will be a link to your blog in the show notes. It's monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. So go check that out. I know it's one that I subscribe to. I've got it on my Feedly, so I'm always watching to see what you put up next, and I can't wait for your 31 days of Halloween. That'll be a lot of fun. So doing 31 days straight. The, the daily articles will be shorter simply because I know everyone just doesn't have time to read long articles for 31 consecutive days, nor do I have the time to write a long <laughs> article every day. So it'll probably be a, you know, a two paragraph mention, you know, Hey, this pros cons and, and maybe a link to, to where you can get the movie. I think most of the movies, uh, it's a, I've got a pretty wide variety of, of, of offerings. And what I did is I looked at my stack of movies that I haven't seen yet and I, I picked mostly from all of that. So probably 25, 26 of the movies that I'll be covering are DVDs from my stack that I either have never watched before or I haven't watched the DVD since I bought it. So it, it'll be a, it's actually going to be a fun month. I'm going to be watching a lot of stuff that I've been wanting to see for a while and some of which I haven't even seen at all. Some, some Hammer films I've never seen before, so I'm looking <gasps> forward to it. <laughs> I haven't seen every Hammer film. I, I, I admit there are some that, that I have not seen. For example, one of the films I'll be talking about is Hands of the Ripper. I have never seen that. There was a Blu-ray release had, that came out that's really good of that. Yes, I don't have the Blu-ray, and I'm trying so hard to avoid Amazon these days um, to help out my financial advisor from killing me, uh, <laughs> a.k.a. my wife. So. But, yeah, that's one that I'm thinking, man, you know, if I could find that here locally and just kind of sneak it in with, like, maybe Star Trek when I pick that up, you know, or, <laughs> you know, if I could kind of sneak it in. But, unfortunately, I don't think anyone is carrying it here in town. So I'm going to have to come up with something because I, I think that I need to see that on Blu-ray if I'm going to review it. Right on. So. Well, you know, we talked about Godzilla. We just talked about Hammer just a little bit. These are cornerstones of what Monster Kid Radio is built on. I mean, these classic monster movies, classic horror movies, and two of the other big pillars that hold us up. Bella Lugosi, Boris Karloff. They used to be part of our tagline, Lugosi still lives, Karloff is still king. They are so important to what we do here. Why did you want to bring them up? Karloff and Lugosi were the first monster icons that I watched back in the 70s. I grew up in the 70s before the days of cable television, before the days of VCRs. And so we, and we didn't have a UHF station when I grew up. We had one station in particular, it was the ABC affiliate, that would play the horror and sci-fi flicks. And they would typically play them on, on Friday nights, Thursday, you know, late uh, Saturday nights. And then uh, sometimes, if you're lucky, you'd get something on a Saturday or, or Sunday afternoon, but not that often. I mean, I can tell you that the first time I watched Earth versus the Flying Saucers was on a Saturday afternoon when there was no sports on. They, they played a movie. And the first time I watched War of the Worlds was on a Sunday afternoon. With Karloff and Lugosi, they had, I don't know if they had the shock theater package, but they did play a lot of the universal horror films. So I have very vivid memories of, of you know, early 70s when I was probably five or six years old watching Dracula watching Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, uh, watching Creature from the Black Lagoon. I mean, those are the movies that I watched first. And it wasn't until we got cable, about when I was 10 or 11, that we started getting some other stations from like Kansas City and the early Superstation TBS when it was WTCG out of Atlanta. That's when I started seeing like the Hammer films. So I was, you know, 10 or 11 years old before I saw Hammer films. So for me, when I think of, of going back to my childhood and I think of, of the cornerstone to building my life as a monster movie kid, it's Carl from Lugosi. Those are the movies I saw first, and those are the ones I, I will still gravitate to every October. It's not a, a Halloween season if I don't get in at least three or four universal horror films. You know, I've had them recorded off television. I bought the VHS tapes when they came out. I bought them when they came out on DVDs, and last year I bought the Blu-ray set from the UK. And I guess whenever the next version comes out, whatever that may be, <laughs> you know, implanting a chip into my brain, I'll be buying that chip. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll just keep buying the versions as they keep cranking them out. Yeah, yep. I'm hoping for a follow-up Blu-ray set to uh, some of the Universals, because 
Now that Blu-ray set was pretty. It was gorgeous. The Dracula restoration is amazing. That was a really nice set. You know, Universal, unfortunately, has had, uh, you know, uh, a, a reputation of kind of being uneven with their love for the Universal monsters. I mean, there's still so many monsters, uh, monster movies from them that, you know, haven't even seen really an official DVD release. I mean, like Curse of the Undead, which Vince discovered recently over at the uh, B-Movie Cat. Right. And that still has not been officially released on DVD. Uh, or the Wild Women movies with Aquanetta. I mean, they haven't done anything with those in a long time, so... Yeah, they did the first one, and then they yeah. didn't release the other two. And there's two other films. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the last thing they put out on DVD was some of those Turner Classic Movie exclusives, and those were so high-priced that uh, and, and kind of hard to get. Uh, a lot of people never bothered to get those. They kept their bootleg copies or their VHS copies. So, um, yeah, I really hope they follow it up and put at least some of the more high-profile sequels like uh, Dracula's Daughter, Son of Dracula, Revenge of the Creature. Son of um, Frankenstein. You know, got, Son of Frankenstein, yeah. And I mean, got, come on. It's got plenty to choose from, so I really hope they will follow up. But I'm disappointed. I was kind of hoping we'd have it this year. Yeah, and, and they kind of missed the boat. So maybe next year. We'll, we'll cross our fingers and maybe next year. Uh, we talked about, Karloff, we talked about Legosi in terms of why they're important to you. To me, they're kind of the two big top dogs of universal horror. They're the ones that I gravitated to. As soon as I started learning about classic monster movies when I was a kid in school, I found a, a series of the Crestwood House books, the monster books, the thin little hardcover books of the orange print, yeah. you know, talking about Dracula, Frankenstein, Godzilla, The Creature in the Black Lagoon. I found those in the kids' section of the library. I checked them out over and over and over again. I believe I even found uh, John Stanley's Monster Movie Trivia book as well and just poured through that and just absorbed everything I could about these classic monsters. And I remember distinctly, and I, I need to check with my mother to see if she still has a copy of it, if she even bothered saving it. But I remember distinctly in grade school, when we were told as an assignment to write a paper about Halloween, I wrote this long diatribe that only a second grader could write about how Halloween should be a celebration of Lon Chaney Jr. and Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff and these little girls dressing up as princesses didn't know what they were doing. And I mean, I was a self-righteous little kid, <laughs> just discovered monsters for the first time. So, yeah, I, I knew who Bella Lugosi was and I knew who Boris Karloff were before I even saw the films. And then, of course, seeing the movies, it kind of just locks in their importance to me. I find myself more, and I know it's not necessarily the popular opinion, I find myself more on Team Lugosi than Team Karloff. I love Karloff, don't get me wrong. I actually think he's a better actor. However, Lugosi's charisma is so mesmerizing, it has a lock on my soul. So... You put Little Ghosty in something, and I'm going to watch it. I don't care if Ed Wood directed it. I'm going to enjoy it because it's Legosi. Legosi definitely had the charm, and I think two things held him back in Hollywood. He made the ill-fated decision, now legendary, but he chose not to play the monster in Frankenstein. I, I think that was obviously a, a key mistake that he made early on in his career, and his, his accent um, at the time prevented him from getting a lot of the roles I think that he could have. And I think in today's society, I don't think the accent would hold him back. I think it would be a selling point for him. But back then it was kind of uh, some Hollywood studios didn't want to mess with that. And uh, unfortunately, you know, once the, the drug issues started to come in, he, he didn't stand much of a chance in Hollywood at that point. Um, his life could have been much different, I think, had he not made that fateful decision to avoid playing the monster in 1931. I think that's a big part of it, and I think you nailed it with the accent. I mean, he was really coming into the pop culture awareness in the 30s. He's got this thick Eastern European accent. I mean, you've got this kind of scary outsider thing going, whereas you've got Karloff, when he speaks you know, in person in interviews or whatever, he's this gentle Englishman. And there's a, for better or worse, this, this more gentle feel about communicating with Karloff, you always feel a little more secure because, well, he sounds like a proper Britishman. Whereas Lugosi's this harsh Eastern European, there's an edge of danger to him. You and know, he didn't learn the I, language. I mean, that was the other big part of it. He learned a lot of his lines phonetically. He didn't learn our English for a long time, whereas Karloff had a 
leg up on that? It was interesting when I was doing the research. I found that Karloff was born in London, but he never became a, a U.S. citizen. Lugosi uh, did become a U.S. citizen. He became a U.S. citizen in 1931, uh, the same year he did Dracula. But as you said, the accent is what held him back. But in, <laughs> ironically enough, you know, if anyone was, was holding that against him, especially during World War II, well, Lugosi had already committed to becoming a U.S. citizen, and Karloff never did. And that wasn't something that I was even really aware of until I started doing the research. You know, Lugosi made the United States his home. Karloff did as well, but he never wanted to renounce his you know, kinship to London uh, and, to, and to England, where Lugosi was willing to accept that the United States was his home. And I think maybe if that would have been, you know, if there were any fears, if anyone truly knew that, maybe that would have opened some doors, you know. But unfortunately, by the 1940s as well, the drug abuse was starting to, to sneak in. And I think that at that point, that's what hurt his career probably more than anything. And that was just kind of a downward spiral. Once he started to, to go down that path, and doors started getting shut, you know, then unfortunately, it just it was a domino effect. And, and one that he never really truly bounced back from until Ed Wood, you know, discovered him. And we're kind of jumping ahead because by that point, the Karloff Lugosi rivalry was was gone. Yeah. By the 1950s, there was no rivalry anymore. If you, if you had to declare a winner in the rivalry, I guess you had to have declared it to be Karloff. But Karloff and Lugosi, uh, and it's a lot of people think that they did more movies together than uh, than they actually did. They actually only did eight movies together. And probably only two of those, maybe maybe three, did Karloff and Lugosi really have equal roles. By the time you got to some of the latter films, I mean, Karloff was clearly outshining Lugosi. And unfortunately, in all of those films, Karloff, whether he was the main star of the movie or not, was top-billed over Lugosi. I found it particularly interesting. I, I revisited... Um, the first two films that they did, 1934's The Black Cat and 1935's The Raven. And by that point, I mean, the, the rivalry was clearly established because Lugosi had become a star with, with Dracula in 1931. He was announced to play the monster in Frankenstein, and then he ultimately turned it down because he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to be under all the makeup. Karloff got the part and became a huge star. And even by the next year, when he was doing 1932, I mean, he did The Mummy, he did The Old Dark House. They were making references to the star of Frankenstein. Whereas Lugosi, he did a fabulous movie in 1932 called Murders in the Rue Morgue, which I think is one of his, his very best performances. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, he just does an amazing job. He was still at that point clearly getting starring roles. I mean, you look at if some of the movies he did that same, like White Zombie, for example, another one of his most, you know, iconic roles. But then you flash forward just a couple of years later, and you start to see that Lugosi is starting to do more of the, the B pictures, whereas Karloff is is getting top roles. And he's and Karloff is divergent because he's not doing just horror films. He's doing films across the board. He does kind of an action-adventure film called The Lost Patrol. He does a period piece called the house of Rothschild, but Lugosi was already kind of getting, you know, pigeonholed into this villainous role. And a lot of it had to do with, again, his, his European appearance and his European accent. Hollywood wasn't accepting of him in a romantic lead role. When in reality, he had so much charisma, he could have easily pulled that off and did in many of his movies. Karloff, on the other hand, never really, I don't think he could have pulled off a romantic role um, without coming across as, you know, a little off kilter. And some of that was because of his lisp, which enhanced his horror appearances. But it was, it was pretty obvious when he wasn't playing a horror role. And I think in sometimes was kind of a detriment to the character he was trying to portray in some of those movies. You know, it, it, it stands out and you still automatically, your brain starts clicking in. You know, this, this is Karloff. He's a bad guy, you know, or he's a mad scientist. Uh, Lugosi, I think, had opportunities and just, unfortunately, you know, by the late 1930s that had changed. But the mid-1930s, when Karloff and Lugosi did Black Cat and the Raven, in both of those films, Karloff is top billed. And he is called at that point, he's just called Karloff. He did a series of movies where he was just using his last name. Lugosi, 
was billed as Lugosi. Um, I think in both of those movies, he was billed just under the last name. I know in The Raven, he was billed just with his last name. And those are the, that's the only time that that ever happened for him. With The Black Cat, he was equal to Karloff in the role of that movie. Whereas in The Raven, it's clearly a Lugosi movie. Karloff is clearly second fiddle, but yet he had top billing. And I thought that was a travesty. Lugosi earned the opportunity to be top billed in that movie because the movie was his. His character, Dr. Richard Vaughn, was was the main character of the film, and, and Karloff was just kind of the disfigured henchman of sorts, and great in the role that he, that he did, but not as good as, as Lugosi in that movie. But after that, when you go to 1936's The Invisible Ray, again, Karloff is top billed, and you could begin to see by that point, Karloff is clearly the star of that movie, and Lugosi was clearly playing second fiddle, in a lot of the scenes to Karloff. And that kind of stems from the fact that Lugosi initially had uh, a fear that Karloff was going to, you know, try to outshine him and, and, and try to steal the scenes. When in fact, Karloff never intended to do that. Karloff considered Lugosi an equal on those films and, and never tried to outshine Lugosi. And once Lugosi realized that, the rivalry kind of ended. Hollywood kept the, the rivalry going there was some some bitter feelings in later years, but at that point, Lugosi trusted Karloff. Karloff, you know, had no reason to distrust Lugosi, but Karloff did reference a few times that he felt that Lugosi was not as good an actor. I think he was quoted at one point as saying that he never learned his craft, and I think that's kind of what fueled the the rivalry between the two, at least in Hollywood's mind because Karloff kind of comes out and says, yeah, Lugosi's not as good an actor. Well, I actually think Lugosi was, and I think that was kind of, as much as I love Karloff, I think that that quote, if in fact it really came from him, is kind of a bit of a disservice to Lugosi, because I think he really did. He just had some of those strikes against him, and Karloff kept getting the diverse roles and, and kept getting a big name for himself in Hollywood. When it came to Son of Frankenstein in 1939, Karloff, he was the monster, but I think Lugosi's performance in that movie outshines Karloff. Karloff doesn't give his best performance as a monster. He did that in Bride of Frankenstein, and then in Son of Frankenstein is Karloff's least of the three performances as the monster, where Lugosi does a pretty good job playing the character of Igor, a bit stereotypical, but he plays it wonderfully in that movie. But again, he was outshined by Karloff in that flick. I think something that's important to point out, too, and you've said it a couple of times, and just to reiterate, a big part of the quote-unquote rivalry was studio press, was Hollywood gossip. I don't think the rivalry was anywhere near as big as we've ever been led to believe in movies like Ed Wood, uh, in some of the documentaries or books or articles or TV shows that we've seen. I don't think Karloff and Lugosi really had it out for each other at all. I think that it's really blown out of proportion. You talk to their kids now, and they're all very cool with each other and have stressed that, no, they really did not hate each other, that sort of thing. I seem to recall Karloff expressing that he was sad for Lugosi a couple of times. That he yeah, felt you, sorry you hear for that him. quote. Yeah. yeah, poor Bella, you know, I, I think is, I think he did. I think he saw, you know, where you know, Lugosi was, was not getting some of the opportunities, you know, that, that he clearly should have gotten. I don't think, I don't think Lugosi was ever bitter towards Karloff about it. I think he may have been bitter at times, just that he didn't get, wasn't getting better roles. And fortunately, again, he kind of got into that poverty row rut in the 1940s. And then, but in all honesty, not all of those movies are bad. I enjoy some of those movies. From the no, 40s. not at all. And, I mean, some of those are great. I mean, White Zombie's one of those movies, for crying out loud. And I love yeah, White Zombie. I, exactly. Uh, I remember, I think it was an Invisible Ghost, I think is one. Uh, the Human Monster from 1939 clearly poverty row pick i think it's a fun flick if i was to rank my top 10 lugosi films i i'd probably put it in the top 10 it's a gritty fun fun movie and, and for a lot of the lugosi's films they didn't see the light of day for years and, and a lot of people bad mouth alpha video but alpha video was the first company to put a lot of lugosi's films out on dvd uh in the late 90s and early 2000s they were the ones that got a hold of these public domain flicks that hadn't really, that had never been released on, on VHS, 
hadn't really been seen anywhere except amongst the, the black market, amongst traders. You didn't have that. Alpha Video really did a, a service to Lugosi fans. I remember when they were cranking those out for a cheap price. Now, yeah, the prints may not be 100%, but again, I'm not sure even if you were to go back to 1940, you know, the early 1940s, if the prints were ever in good shape <laughs> because you're dealing with movie companies that were running on a, on a shoestring budget on a good day. And I think we're just lucky to still have these films released by Alpha Video for five, six, seven bucks. I mean, come on, you can't complain about that. And a lot of those movies are great. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Now, do you think part of the issue, I mean, you've, you've already kind of mentioned the drug addiction issues that Legosi had, which I think we all know about. But do you think part of it as well is the severe typecasting? I mean, Karloff was covered with makeup as the monster. So while you can still tell it was him, especially for fans of his work, you know it's him. A lot of what was the monster was obscured by the makeup. So Karloff could then sell his face elsewhere as something else completely different, doing some non-horror projects, whereas Lugosi's face was Dracula. Yeah. Do you think that might have had something to do Dracula. with it? Yeah, I really do. I mean, he, uh, and that's why I think that if Lugosi had played the monster, again, who knows, I mean, how, how that performance would have, would have gone. I and mean, we did see Lugosi eventually play the monster, but by the time he did, you know, when he played the monster in uh, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, unfortunately, he, he really got kind of the shaft in that film. I mean, if you know anything about the movie, he was the monster was originally supposed to be blind and was supposed to be because he I think he had gotten blind at the end of the previous film. But he was also supposed to be uh, able to speak. Well, Ghosty, his voice was used for the monster at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein after Igor's brain is put into the monsters. But. Shortly into filming, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, they decided, okay, now, you know, Lugosi can see, you know, the monster can see, rather. And they didn't like Lugosi's voice as a monster, so they decided to just dub some things and, and to take his voice out. Well, when you watch the movie, if you don't know this, you see Lugosi's lips moving at several points, but there's no voice coming out. And so your immediate thought is, well, you know, what's, what's Lugosi doing? Why is, he, why is his lips moving? Well, that's because he was originally speaking lines that got cut out. And there are times that, you know, he is walking in a very kind of, well, he's walking like a blind man. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, the monster now is seeing. And so it makes, it makes it look like Lugosi is just giving a very wooden performance of the monster. And that wasn't the case at all. I would have loved to have seen what Lugosi could have done in 1931's Frankenstein, because I think it would have been very interesting to see how Lugosi's career could have gone, because he would have been able to show, hey, I can do this, and I can do this, like you said with Karloff. He could hide under the makeup and do the monster flicks, but then he could go down the road and do The Lost Patrol, or House of Rothschild, or Scarface, or any of the other number of movies that he that he was doing at the same time that he was under the makeup for the monster, and the makeup that he had for the mummy or the old dark house. He was able to do both. And Lugosi kind of got pigeonholed again yeah. that this is who he is and this is all he can do. I and find I think that it's a disservice to Lugosi. I find it ironic a little bit that what we see in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman with the monster walking around with his arms held out trying to feel his way around because he was supposed to be blind inadvertently became kind of the stereotype of the Frankenstein monster for a long time in pop culture. The Frankenstein monster walks with his hands out, you know, zombie style or whatever. It's like, you know, and that was not (laughs) intentional at all. I mean, unless you know what was really going on behind the scenes there, I would have loved to have heard Bella's voice as the monster because continuity wise, it would have made perfect sense. Well, it did. I mean, he was speaking at the end of the previous film, and all exactly. of a sudden he can't talk again. So that that right there didn't make any sense whatsoever. And I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen Ghost of Frankenstein. Was he blind at the end of the movie? I think he was, wasn't he? I believe so. I, I, you know, I have seen it. It's been a long time. Either he was blinded at the end of it, or it's explained that something happened that led to Man, I guess I'm just going to have to go back and rewatch it. Exactly. Bummer. I, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't see it last year. I usually go through the Frankenstein films about every other year. But I remember him being on the operating table and talking, and then all of a sudden he can't see because it was the after effect of, of the surgery. And I think that's how we ended the movie. Then all of a sudden he can see in the next one. So yeah. But continuity wasn't necessarily something that Universal has always been good at. <laughs> As much as we love the Universal monster flicks, there there are some continuity issues. Uh, 
I think from uh, the Mummy movies are a prime example where you know the Mummy is. <laughs> Well, I yeah. can't remember the which. It's one of the Lon Chaney ones. You know, he he goes into the quicksand in one part of the country, and all of a sudden, next he's in the bayou. You know, <laughs> like well, okay. That, and, and time wise too, they're they're always very clear at the beginning of these movies. Twenty five years ago, this happened. Well, this happened a decade ago. So really, time wise, the last of that series should have happened in like the two thousands. So yeah. <laughs> just yeah. those films don't make a heck of a lot of sense. But you know, we we still love them. <laughs> you know, and, exactly. And, you know, the continuity thing, you're right. I mean, these were products for Universal, especially at that period of time, the 40s and 50s. As much as we look at these movies with great reverence, they were product, more so than, you know, the stuff they were doing in the 30s or 40s, I think. And, you know, if something like that has to go by the wayside, then so be it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there, definitely. You can throw the, throw the little inconsistencies out the window and, and uh, just enjoy them for what they are. Now, regarding Lugosi and Karloff, you had mentioned there were some other similarities between the two that you found surprising. I did. You know, um, I, I found that uh, just their personal life, for example, really did kind of mirror each other. Uh, I did not realize that Karloff had been married six times. Uh, he only had one child, you know, Sarah Karloff, who is well-known amongst the monster community because she has kept the Karloff legacy going. But Lugosi himself was married five times, and he had only one son, and that was... Bela George Lugosi, but I think it's his grandson is the one that has kind of carried on the, uh, isn't that correct? Is his grandson the, the attorney? No, it's Bela Lugosi Jr. is the uh, the attorney. The grandson of Lon Chaney Jr. is the one that's doing the Lon Chaney stuff. Okay. I okay. okay. Yeah, either way. But yeah, their personal lives were kind of very similar in that regard. Now, you know, as we talked about, Lugosi's drug addiction obviously, you know, took his career down a whole other path by the 1940s, but it was the result of back problems, which Karloff himself had. He had, he basically damaged his back when he was the monster, carrying Colin Clive around. Karloff never succumbed to the pain medication that I'm sure he took, where Lugosi did, and certainly sped up uh, and shortened, rather, Lugosi's life. I mean, Lugosi died of a heart attack at the age of 73 in 1956 after years of, of really hitting rock bottom with the drug abuse, whereas Karloff lived to be 81, died in 1969, but by the end of his life, I mean, he was in a wheelchair. And in a lot of the movies that he did in the 1960s, he was sitting down in a lot of them. I mean, but when you see a lot of the scenes and say like um, The Raven, uh, with with Vincent Price and uh, Peter Lorre and Jack Nicholson, or The Terror, which also starred Jack Nicholson, Comedy of Terrors. I mean, a lot of those movies, he is sitting down more than he is standing up. And by the very end of his career, Karloff never had to continue to act. He just continued to do so because he loved it. But uh, at the very end of his career, he was doing, uh, he did four movies down in Mexico, and, and they would be totally forgotten today, unless, but the fact that, that Karloff is in them, his scenes are good for what they are and for what the movie is. But again, he's, he's sitting down, and I think he may even be in a wheelchair in a couple of those movies. But he would be on set. He was on an oxygen tank. <laughs> he had basically half of one lung capacity at that point. He had had pneumonia, but and he didn't have to act, but he loved to do it and kept getting wheeled to the set. And when they said action, the oxygen tank came off, and Karloff immediately went into it. And even in those last films, he still had it. But he lived so much longer than Lugosi and was able to have that defining moment that, that Lugosi never had. When you look at uh, Karloff's last films, the one movie that stands out is Targets in 1968. It's one of his best movies. Yeah, uh, it is. Very, yeah, it's very different from his other films because it's modern day. It's a, a film about a sniper. It is at times kind of hard to watch because innocent people are just getting gunned down left and right. But man, Karloff gave a fantastic performance, and Lugosi never had that. His last movies were Ed Wood films, and in fact, uh, the last real movie that he filmed was The Black Sheep, <laughs> and he didn't even and he didn't even speak. Yeah, you know, uh, Planet Nine from Outer Space. I have a hard time saying that's Lugosi's last film. The footage was filmed after he got out of rehab. Edward filmed it and didn't even know what movie he was going to put it in. Right. And then Lugosi died, and then three years later, he, you know, Edward slapped the footage in Plan 9 from Outer Space. That's not a Lugosi film in my mind. Unfortunately, Lugosi's last film is, was The Black Sheep, and uh, it, it's sad to see Lugosi in that. He doesn't, you know, doesn't even speak, and he's just kind of there. 
Bride of the Monster, while not a great film at all, and <laughs> there's a lot wrong with that, Lugosi gave that performance 100% and did as good as he can. And it's in, because, again, Lugosi is in that movie is the reason I even mention it today. If any other actor would have been in it, most likely um, it would be on a public domain set and might get a casual mention. But because it is Lugosi, it, it elevates the movie from grade Z status to maybe grade X. I don't know. That's pretty bad, but uh, at least he makes it watchable. Agreed. But it is sad where, where the, uh, the rivalry we were talking about. I mean, when you look at 1940, I think is, is is a key point where the rivalry, in my mind, stopped being a rivalry in the movie Black Friday. Karloff and Lugosi were actually supposed to have kind of equal roles. Initially, Karloff was supposed to have the professor role, and Lugosi was going to have one of the doctor roles that uh, Karloff ended up, he wanted the, the doctor role because that was the bigger of the two roles. And that's the only time I really see where Karloff maybe called the shots a little bit that ended up really hurting Lugosi because they didn't give the professor role to Lugosi. They gave it to an unknown actor, essentially, and Lugosi ended up being a gangster and having a role that was clearly a supporting role. That movie is hard to call that a true Karloff-Lugosi film. It happened. It's a Karloff film that happens to have Lugosi in it. And I think that when you look at the very last film they did, The Body Snatcher, Lugosi's, he's almost an extra in that film. That's Karloff's film. And exactly. by that point, yeah, that, that particular year, besides that movie, Lugosi cranked out Zombies on Broadway and Genius at Work, which are two horrible films. Hey and, now, hey now, Zombies on Broadway, you be careful, man. I used to do a zombie oh. show. I know, I know, and no, you never I'm covered right that movie. I don't I'm right there with you. No, it's it's <laughs> yeah, not one of the better it. ones. <laughs> no, and if you, you know, Lugosi's last shining moment was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. He was able to revisit Count Dracula 17 years later. He does a fantastic job. He looked good in that movie. Whereas if you go even, you know, he had a gap then because right after that, that didn't resurrect his career. He was absent from Hollywood for years. And then he resurfaces in 1952 with Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. A classic. Have you ever seen that flick? Oh, it's, have you seen that one? I, I have seen it. I know that movie. Yeah, I mean yeah. the Dean Martin Jerry Lewis ripoffs are what make that so painful. And uh, Lugosi does the best he can with that one, but it's that that way. I don't know if that's Lugosi's worst film. <laughs> it may very well be his worst film. I mean Karloff. You know, Karloff didn't do, 1950s was a rough time for Karloff, too, but he at least he was doing some universal films and stuff. But he did a movie called Island Monster, which was rock bottom for Karloff. Have you ever, have you ever seen Island Monster? I don't think I have. It's like 53, 54. It's not a monster film. Um, Karloff accepted the role so he could go over, I think it was shot in Spain. He wanted a vacation. So he, and it's a, essentially, it's a crime movie, you know, crime drama. It's all dubbed, and unfortunately, they didn't get Karloff to dub his own voice. They hired a guy who was using his Karloff impersonation. Uh, it is so bad. So you know, Karloff had his fair share of stinkers. That probably stinks worse than Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. If that tells wow. you how bad Island Monster is. Wow. I, well, now I, I, I want to see not, it. So. <laughs> it's, it's out there on DVD, actually. It's paired up, I think, with one of Karloff's Mexican horror flicks from the late 60s. So there are a lot of other similarities, though, between Karloff and Lugosi. I mean, they, you know, Karloff did a lot of work on radio, a lot of classic radio shows like Lights Out, Inner Sanctum. Lugosi didn't do as much radio work, but he did do Dracula on the radio in 1928 that he was doing the stage play at that point, and he does a scene from the stage play. They did it on radio. Fortunately, it doesn't exist today, but Lugosi beat Karloff to the radio, and uh, the reviews are that that was a really good performance for bringing a stage play to the radio. Now, when you look at some other stuff like the, the television work, I mean, Karloff did a ton of TV work. You know, he did, a, I went four television series. He did Colonel March's Scotland Yard, The Veil, Thriller, Out of This World. Those were shows that he hosted and starred in, not to mention all of his guest appearances. Lugosi did one television appearance. It was an episode of Suspense in 1949, Cask of Amontillado, which luckily does exist today. 
but beyond that, he never did any any television work. I do remember seeing him on a, things like You Asked For It and things like that, but those were... Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was just playing himself or doing special appearances. In yeah, that's, that's what acting, I remember. Yeah. yeah, as far as actually acting, he only... Yeah. He only did the suspense. And, but again, at that time, by the time television was in full swing, he was also rock bottom with his drug abuse. So, and in fact, many people um, thought Lugosi was dead. And when he started popping up in the Ed Wood films, they, were, they all thought that Lugosi had been dead for years because he was just so far out of the Hollywood structure. You know, I found it interesting that even uh, one similarity between Karloff and Lugosi is that they are both represented in comic books. Karloff had, of course, the classic Boris Karloff Tales of Mystery from Gold Key. Uh, ran for uh, 97 issues from 1962 to 1980. But there's nothing from Karloff today in the comics, but Bela Lugosi has Tales from the Grave. Uh, it's from a lesser-known comic book company called Monsterverse. It is weird to see Lugosi as a host in those comic books, much like Karloff as a host on in the television shows. But it, it does show what Lugosi could have done. And the artwork is fantastic in there. Unfortunately, oh, they just don't crank, they don't crank out the issues very much. Have you seen it? Have you seen Tales from the Grave? Uh, I have. Kerry Gamble is the publisher behind the Monsterverse. He's a fantastic comic book artist, did a lot of work on the Indiana Jones stuff with Marvel, did a lot of Marvel work. I'm a big fan of his work, actually, and his artwork, his rendition of Lugosi in those books, I love it. I would just buy a comic of just nothing but Lugosi pinups done by Cary Gamble. Oh, yeah. They they're look so, fantastic. Yeah, they're so lifelike and realistic. I wish oh, yeah. that they, they, they would come out on a more regular basis, because it's a classic, in my mind, it's a classic comic book, you know, the, the horror anthology that... Um, Really, the only horror anthology comics we're getting today are coming from Dark Horse. They're they're doing the the creepy and eerie, um, and even then, they, those don't come out nearly enough. I wish those would come out at least on a bi-monthly basis. I think they're quarterly, so yep. I, I wish we could get more of those because those harken back to the 1970s Marvel horror comics, and even farther back onto the you know Tales from the Crypt and stuff. But um, you know, I, Karloff and Lugosi's career, I mean, in so many parallels, they get so many differences. You know, I, I think that um, at the end of their careers, you know, Karloff had a lot more work because he lived longer, had a lot more television appearances because he was still healthy when television was fully in swing. You look at Lugosi's career, and I always just constantly think, what could have happened, you know, if Lugosi would have lived longer, if he wouldn't have had the drug abuse, if he would have made this decision? And I think that's where I think Lugosi if all of the the stars and planets would have been lined up a little bit better for him, I think Lugosi would have outshined Karloff. And I think for so many years, Karloff, and I love Karloff, but Karloff has always gotten the better press. But I think you've seen in the last, you know, 20 years or so that Lugosi's getting a lot of love that he didn't have. <laughs> to draw a totally crazy comparison, you know, for so many years, Shemp was was the was the bad stooge, right? Everyone just had so much love for Curly because they always compared Shemp to Curly, and and you know, they, well, he's no Curly. Well, no, he's not. He's he is Shemp. He's a totally different you know stooge. And in the last you know twenty or thirty years, a lot of people have come to recognize that Shemp is excellent at what he does. Totally different from what Curly does but yet is excellent in his own right. And I think that Lugosi has gotten that recognition far too late, but is getting that recognition that, you know, Lugosi could do a lot of things that Karloff couldn't do. And he could have done a lot more if he had had opportunities. And I think that the two now, they are equal billing. Karloff's no longer the top billed. I think they are both equally billed as kings of horror. Well, you know, to talk to what you were saying about Lugosi getting the respect I think it's telling that when the Universal Blu-ray set came out, the one movie that got this super attention-to-detail treatment for restoration was Dracula, even though Frankenstein typically is the favorite film of the two. Dracula came first, so maybe that's why they did it, but I think it's telling that that's the one that got the restoration treatment of that Blu-ray release. Oh, and it's a beautiful, oh, yeah. beautiful restoration they did. The only thing missing from that would have been, and I, it supposedly it exists as the epilogue from Edward Van Sloan that, that supposedly was at the end of Dracula. And, and, you know, I've seen a snippet of it in a documentary before, but supposedly it exists. Well, they're saving that for, uh, for the next release, the next edition, for when they implant yeah. it into our brains. They're saving it for that. Yeah. 
again, big thanks to Rich for dropping by and being part of the show this week. We are going to come back here, if all goes well, in a couple of days to do our top three breakdown of Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi collaboration. So you'll want to come back for that. I say if all goes well because, well, you know, if medical issues or whatever kind of get in the way, I might have to push it off till next week. Fingers, tentacles, everything else crossed, ladies and gentlemen. We should be back in a couple of days for that. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Agua Roja or Red Water. It appears on the album Lost B-Sides by the band Los Wet Guitars. It appears in this episode of Monster Kid Radio by permission of the band. Talk to you next time. (laughs) 